Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast, the first one in a while, the first of many coming up. We are back on a regular cycle. I imagine we'll be doing podcasts weekly in some format with with some combination of people on here. But today we have my familiar co-host, my trusted co-host, back for year three. It's the former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, Max Brown. Max, how you doing? Year three, baby. It's crazy. We had the, the intro year, then we had the pandemic year. So this year, hopefully, we're just back to normal, whatever normal is now. But uh, now I'm pumped for, uh, for a, a new football season ahead. Yeah, it feels pretty normal as we start camp later today, Friday. You know, I never, I always forget to introduce myself. And I shouldn't just assume that everyone knows who I am. (laughs) You're the the local. Everyone uh, everyone knows who Ryan Young is. No, don't be be cutting yourself short. I'm going to try and treat this as if we have new listeners who don't know. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of TrojanSports.com, and he's Max Brown. We, have, we saw each other last week at Pac-12 Media Day briefly, but we didn't talk a whole lot, so all the banter you will hear today is fresh. We, have, we haven't tried it out. We haven't had any pre-conversations. And let me just break down the show for you. We are going to talk about, obviously, the start of the camp on Friday. We're going to cover all the key storylines. We're going to run down position by position, go through some categories like the players that we think are going to make the biggest leap this year from last year, stuff like that, break it all down thoroughly, what we expect. Real quick, though, I've got to start with a promo. We have a limited-time promo going. It's a free trial, and it's tied around the start of the camp but also our signature USC Next Up feature series, which goes in-depth profiling USC's incoming freshmen, and that includes the spring enrollees and the summer enrollees. We have 12 great stories for you, and we've got nine more to go. If you haven't checked them out, we've gotten incredible feedback so far. It's just you won't see anything like it anywhere else in the USC beat. We went and visited all these guys before they got the campus, have had these interviews stored up, and we're just rolling out awesome features on all the USC newcomers. Not all of them, but all the ones we met, met with, so 12 features. We also have our Countdown to Camp series where I went position by position and gave you a really thorough analysis, synopsis, overview of key storylines, position battles, etc., so if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of it and go even deeper than we can probably cover in this podcast, check that out. It's all on the homepage. I made one central landing page for all of our camp preview stuff. You can just go through and click on it. And that is all for our premium subscribers. So if you're not subscribed, hop on the free trial. It's promo code NEXTUP21. That's all caps, NEXTUP, and then 21, the number and you'll get a free trial until the first game of the season. So you get all of camp coverage for free. There's no commitment. You just have to activate it before August 11th. So short window to get in, but then you get all of August for free. And uh, just lots of great stuff coming. All right, without further ado, Max, let's start talking football. It's time. It kind of kicked off last week with Pac-12 Media Day. You were there. I was more immersed just in all the USC stuff and trying to track down uh, one-on-one time with Keaton Slobus and Drake London and Clay Helton. I didn't watch a lot of the other teams. I imagine maybe you saw more than I did. I wanted to get some thoughts, just what stood out to you from Pac-12 Media Day? Any storylines, surprises, intrigues? What stuck out to me right away is the delicate fashion in which Jimmy Lake had to answer all of the Apple Cup vaccination <laughs> questions about his arch rival. And oh, I'm always intrigued with how head coaches kind of navigate those choppy waters and whatnot. And like a true pro, Jimmy Lake did just that. But I, I felt like that was – it felt like every, every coach was answering X's and O's questions and Jimmy Lake was answering a lot of not football questions. So – um, that was always an interesting uh, storyline, especially with all of the conference realignment that was in the air. And that was last week. And I feel like everyone was kind of talking about it on the fly in many respects, because it's a lot of speculation. It's a lot of um, here's what could happen and no one really knows what's going to happen. So those conversations are, are fun as well. But to me, anytime with media days, everyone's going to talk quarterbacks. Everyone's going to talk new coaches. But to me, in the summer, the, the, the topic that always sticks out the most is who's going to be the team that, that makes the jump? Who, who, what, what's the storyline that we're not talking about right now that yeah. 
we're going to be talking about in four months. And that's how I always find myself trying to predict that. And I think the conference is in a unique position where you have a lot of coaches who have been around a few years and had a lot of buzz when they were first hired. And it's kind of make or break time in many respects for a lot of the teams across the conference. And uh, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how a Cal, how a UCLA, how, say, does an Oregon State and Jonathan Smith, do they take the next step? All those kind of on a cusp type teams, I'm always intrigued to see what kind of uh, movement they make, especially the first month of the season ahead. Is there one of those that you're personally confident in? Let's see here. UCLA and Cal are the most interesting to me. Am I confident in either? No. But I think there's a world where UCLA makes a jump. And we've talked about that in podcasts in the past of they've had had uh, sparks of, of great signs, but it seems like they're never able to piece it together. DTR, now he is the true vet in the conference, the, the old guy. Can he finally piece it together? I, I like that, the, the prospects there. And then my old coach, uh, Justin Wilcox, talked with him in the hallway for about 15 minutes. I'm rooting for him. And it feels like Cal has been that team for a couple years now. And the harsh reality is if they don't take the jump, I think Justin Wilcox's name starts getting thrown out there a little bit in the hot seat in terms of what is the next step for Cal. They have an old quarterback in Chase Garbers. It feels like if they're going to make that move, it's got to happen now. As I say that out loud, ASU, for the past, I'll call it 18 months minimum, I've always said that this year is ASU's year. Like Everything's building up to the 2021 season in terms of their quarterback, in terms of their recruiting, in terms of their coaching, and then they get into some recruiting trouble. feels mm-hmm. like that they, they, they take one, if not two, steps back, and that's been the distraction. But, Ryan, if we had talked – beginning of this year, it would all, it would have been all about ASU. This is the year that they got to make moves. And I still think that holds true in many respects if ASU is going to, uh, you know, continue the, the positive buzz that they had before all this recruiting stuff uh, came to light. Yeah, I mean, I guess they have to approach it as with a hopeful, optimistic eye that we're going to get through this and not get hammered. We can't have a setback on the field in the meanwhile. Let's keep pushing forward. But I don't know. That's a, that's a big cloud hanging over them. Herm Edwards, of course, didn't really say much at Pac-12 Media Day about that. He kind of, as we, as all coaches would do, they, you know, ongoing investigation. Can't talk about it. This that. You mentioned Nick Rolovich of Washington State was the only coach who was not there because he is not vaccinated, and that was a requirement for all the coaches and players. And uh, that will be an interesting storyline as this season plays out, especially if, I mean, hopefully not, but especially if his team comes down with a rash of, of cases and has to miss a game, then that's going to be a lot of scrutiny on him. That's going to kind of stay with him. We'll see what happens. I'll add one more Pac-12 media day thing to the mix that you didn't touch on. The one coach I did get to hear was Jed Fish of Arizona. And I'll be totally honest, when he was hired, I kind of shrugged and said, I, I don't I don't get it. I don't really see it. I felt the same way when he was getting rumored as a, as a USC coordinator uh, target, possibly. I just didn't see it. But, man, he he has a command. He has a presence. He, he really conveyed himself strongly in that press conference. I can see why he's going to be a good recruiter. He already has been. Already stole a guy from USC and four-star tight end Keon Burnett, who decommitted and then committed to Arizona. I hate to put so much on a 20-minute media day session, but I was really impressed, and I think that maybe, maybe he was the exact right guy for Arizona because you've got to breathe some life into that program. You've got to recruit well and try and close the talent gap a little bit, and maybe that's more important than anything else, and those are his strengths. I like it, and in the same light of press conferences and whatnot, one thing I always find funny is you can tell – the job security that a head coach has based on the answers he's able to give in Pac-12 media days. And what I mean by that is turn on David Shaw's interviews and the he's given some good insight. He's talking about NIL and he's not dancing around expectations or any of the tough questions because my man David Shaw knows, hey, that job's pretty, uh, pretty locked in for him at Stanford. And it's only funny because there's a stark contrast sometimes when you watch a Clay Helton in a, in a press conference and, you know, his seat continues to stay hot. David Shaw, man, he's up there. He's having a good old time at Pac-12 Media Days. He doesn't have to, uh, you know, worry about saying the wrong thing, so to speak. That's a good point. 
That's a good point. Well, let's. I mean, we, we can't not talk about the major storyline, the the ramifications of Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big Twelve for the SEC. And that doesn't actually take place for a few more years. I think it's twenty twenty five. But obviously, it's it's all out there in the public now. It's going to happen. The wheels are in motion. It's a done deal. And everyone's wondering: Does this lead to an arms race for expansion of the other conferences? Does, do the rest of the Power Five feel like they have to bulk up now too to compete in the future, or do they stand pat? Do they do they merge? What happens? And you know, of course, that that trickles down to the Pac-12 and kind of becomes a new Commissioner George Klyavkov's first major task is, is kind of wading through this. And just a few thoughts at the top of my head. He made a point at Pac-12 Media Day of saying, we don't feel like we have to expand. And I think it's the right stance to take publicly. He also said, you know, we also have a responsibility to listen. We've had a lot of inbound interest. We're going to hear it all out. But the thing to keep in mind is it's not just about getting bigger and adding teams. You have to, It's only worth expanding if you're also going to be expanding the pie enough that when you cut an extra slice out of it, everyone's still getting paid the same. You know, you don't want to add two teams and now you're cutting the pie 14 ways and people are, and schools are getting less than they got under the old deal. That's not going to please anybody. So you've got to really find the additions that are going to make that much of a difference in TV negotiations where it's helping everybody and it's probably harder to do than most things. So you know, I'm not personally convinced that they are going to add or that they have to add. We'll see. Now the, the flip side of that is if the Big Ten bulks up and they become another Goliath conference, then those TV rights deals are going to be gobbled up by the SEC and the Big Ten, and who's going to be bidding on leftovers, the Pac-12 especially. So there, I, I see both sides to it. I just think that they're going to have to have a really, really, really obvious, overwhelming fit and option for it to make sense for them to add right now. I think that's kind of what Klyovkov was saying last week. And kind of what the stance is. Real quick, and I'll throw it to you. There was a report that uh, Klyavkov and Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby were meeting Tuesday. And everything I've heard is that that was just really purely a listening opportunity. I'm, it sounds like it was probably initiated by the Big 12, who's in, in scramble mode and trying to uh, piece together what's left of their conference and figure out where to go from here. I, I don't know that there's really any upside for the Pac-12 to to partner with the Big 12 or to combine you know without Texas and Oklahoma there's there's not a lot to offer in that conference that would that would boost the Pac-12 in, in the ways that I talked about what I heard was uh, you know don't don't read too much into this meeting and it was telling that Klyavkov if you, if you don't follow him on Twitter he's really kind of good on Twitter and entertaining Th- that day after the news broke that they were meeting he tweeted out uh, a quote just about the importance of listening so I think that kind of reiterates that. Max, uh, did you have any just really strong thoughts as this was going down about what the Pac-12 should do? I think right when I first heard it that if the Big 12 kind of dissolves, obviously with Texas and Oklahoma leaving, I feel like the Pac-12 should expand. I, I think if they don't, all right, so then where do all those schools go? Do they form, form their own conference? Do they buddy up with the Tulsa and the Rices of the world type schools to then just create a new Big 12. I don't think that's advantageous for the Baylors and the TCUs and the Oklahoma States of the world. And in the same light, those three schools that I mentioned, I think there is value potentially with the Pac-12 picking those schools up. Because right now, there certainly is a divide from a a college football viewer. If you're in the state of Texas, if we're being honest with ourselves, they're not thinking about Pac-12 football on a consistent basis. They're not thinking about Pac-12 after dark. They're not, that, that's not on their radar. Versus, I know Oklahoma State and TCU and, and Baylor, they're not Texas and Oklahoma, but they do have strong enough and, and, and strong enough programs, especially in a football capacity, to, I think, get some of that attraction from the, the state of Texas, which is big for the, the conference. And I think even in a more simpler way, Right now, the Pac-12, at least for the past five years, has always been portrayed as the little brother. It's been the, the, the conference that's sitting at the kids' table when everyone else is at the, the main dining table. And just by sheer numbers, if the Pac-12 were to get a few of those Big 12 schools and the Big 12 dissolves, 
Well, now the Pac-12 is at the table just by default, just by having those schools in there. Don't get me wrong. The SEC will always be the, the, the top conference, especially with that movement. But I just think when you mention TV rights deals, there's Fox, there's ESPN, and there's CBS. Well, if every one of those conferences is going to want, or every one of those networks is going to want a main stage conference, that makes the Pac-12 more intriguing just by default, just because there's one less player, uh, one less conference in play in the Big 12. So I think all in all, I, I do see some upside for the Pac-12. Is it groundbreaking? Maybe not. Is it good for college football that the Oklahoma and Texas is going that way? I don't think so. But at the end of the day, so much of the Pac-12 and the new commissioner is all about TV rights and money and whatnot. And I don't think, I think there are, I think there's a world where you're certainly helped by the fact that you can draw in on the Texas and Oklahoma and some of that Southern intrigue that never was the case for Pac-12 football. I think that could bring some upside here in the coming years. Yeah, that's the one point that I really do buy, especially you know, I see a school like USC, which is recruiting so heavily in Texas, being very on board behind that, behind closed doors and saying, hey, I, you know, there's some benefit here for us to get into Texas. That's a great point. I just think that it's going to come down to the numbers and being absolutely confident that if we add Baylor and TCU and someone else, that the overall pie is going to be big enough for us to get a, a split that is at least what we have now, if not more. And, uh, you know, timeline-wise, the Pac-12 can't or is not going to be able to redo its media rights deals until 2024. So, you know, there's no rush to rush to the altar, so to speak. They can kind of take their time and really be diligent about this. You know, I guess the deadline would be on the other end and, and what those Big 12 schools choose to do if they're going to be comfortable kind of being in, in limbo for a couple of years. I imagine that there's probably more of an urgency on their end to figure out a, a permanent or or final uh, definitive path. So that might be the timeline. But we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to monitor. There'll be tons of rumors coming out. I'm sure most of them will be false. There might be some kernels of truth in there. We'll see what happens. But speaking of Pac-12, Max, you have a, have a great opportunity this year. And why don't you tell our faithful listeners who have been following your work with us for three years and your uh, just incredible analysis on our, in our film room sessions. What is in store for Max Brown in 2021? No, I appreciate the shout out. Yeah, exciting times. Uh, I'm, the Pac-12 is giving me two color commentator opportunities week one and week three. I'm calling Washington's games. Uh, hence the, the Jimmy Lake reference I made at the top of the show. But yeah, I'll be calling Washington versus Montana week one and Washington, Arkansas state week three. So Appreciate all you guys following me that the past couple of years, ever since I really left SC, and then after my pit year, obviously, been chipping away at the broadcasting front, and this is an exciting, uh, exciting bump up, but shouldn't really change things between us. I'll still be around, still doing USC radio uh, pre and post game show for the other Saturdays of the year, but uh, in the short term, doing more stuff with Pac-12 Network and um, gonna get in the loop with them. So uh, exciting stuff for sure. Definitely very exciting, very well deserved. I know our listeners agree because I appreciate that. Last season, if you guys didn't follow last season when Max did his weekly uh, film room whiteboard sessions, I mean, I just every every single time I learned something. I just felt like I was a smarter football fan after each one. That's the kind of stuff he has to offer, and the Pac-12 audience will get to see that this year. So that's great. Trying to give you a little peek inside of Graham Harrell and Todd Orlando's brain. So hopefully we can uh, do it again this year too. <laughs> All right. Well. We have so much to cover USC-wise with camp opening today, Friday. Uh, let's not uh, delay anymore. Let's get right into it. I want to start with interesting prompts that will kind of steer the conversation, and whatever we haven't gotten to, we'll come back and, and get to. I sent these to Max earlier, so he's had time to think about it. We have not discussed them, though. So let's go through a few of our, I don't know what you would call them, not pre-camp superlatives, uh, expectations, predictions, what have you. First, Max, who do you think is the offensive player that will take the biggest leap this year? Before we start, I feel like we need to take a moment of silence. Uh, there's no marquee step this year, so Ryan's going to have to uh, find his new favorite back or new favorite uh, new favorite player, but I'm sure that'll come in the, uh, in the weeks to come. You, you, you can't force these things, Max. They, they, they come organically, and you have to go with it. 
So I'll know when I know. You know when you know, and I have a feeling, uh, maybe we agree on this first one, but biggest leap, that was your question, right? Biggest leap? Yeah. Biggest leap uh, on the offensive front, I think it's going to be Gary Bryant. And I think it's because of two reasons. One, his talent and just now his second year on campus, and I feel like he's, he's ready to take on that role. But two, with some of the movement this offseason, um, both at receiver position uh, and the, some, I'm sure we'll get into that with Brew McCoy's unfortunate news. And yeah. then obviously the running back position, you, you listeners, you guys have heard me talk about over the years, less of running back and receiver and tight end and different position groups, but more of a, just a pitch count. There's only so many touches in every single game. So anytime one receiver gets a, a touch, that means the running back's not getting it. And I think by guys moving on to the NFL, Brew McCoy's situation, running back transfers and whatnot, I think it allows Gary Bryant to step into a role where he truly can be a main stage piece of this offense. Um, and I'm excited for him. I, I think he is that spark plug. It's been a little while since SC has had that true speedy slot. And I know Amon Ra's out there, and um, he, but he, he obviously moved to the outside last year and we're used to Drake London, who's the big slot receiver. I'm excited for a true air raid style, speedy slot, and I'm sure he'll get some rep with the outside, but Gary Bryant's my uh, my, my player who, who takes the biggest leap this year. Well, yeah, you, you stole my thunder there. I thought Boom, the, called I thought, it. I thought the obvious answer was Cortland Ford, who, you know, played one game last year and is now probably going to, or I'm not going to say probably, he's going to be the starting left tackle and look good in the spring. There's a lot of reasons to be optimistic and uh, he's really kind of taken some of the steam out of the the panic of how do we replace Elijah Vera Tucker I'm not saying he's going to match uh you know first round NFL draft pick production this year but they at least seem to know who the guy's going to be and have some confidence in them so I thought that was the obvious one so I was going to go Gary Bryant because I totally agree with you and we weren't avoiding the, the Brew McCoy news I knew it would just come up organically at some point here obviously it's announced earlier this week that Brew McCoy, the third-year receiver, former five-star, uh, projected starter, you know, a guy who we thought was going to have a breakout year, has been temporarily removed from team activities, is how it was phrased, following an arrest on July 24th. It's a sensitive matter. There's really not been any details released beyond just what the charge was, and we don't know any particulars about it. I just I don't want to get into any kind of speculation as to what it means for his future, what it means legally, what it means for if he can come back, when he can come back. I just think it's dangerous to even go guessing down any of those those lanes. So all, all we know is that they're going to open camp today on Friday, and he's not going to be part of it. And we don't know when he's coming back or if he's coming back or what's going to happen with this case. And it's definitely a blow. Obviously a serious situation, and, and that's – more important than the football ramifications. It's a, it's a bad setback for him personally and for everyone involved and just just not good. Uh, but, you know, we're going to talk football here. So football-wise, USC loses one of its two projected outside receiver starters. And it, they didn't have many obvious you know, options there. When, when you lose Michael Pittman, Tyler Vaughns, and Amon Ross St. Brown in the last two years, you're, you're kind of uh, starting over. And they thought they were starting over with him and, and Drake London probably moving outside uh, most of the time. And now they have to uh, fill that void. And so you mentioned Gary Bryant as a true slot, which is how I've always seen him. I mean, that's, that's, he's, he's 6'1", 175, 180, um, just super quick and smooth. He just has this long, fluid strides and... He just has a knack for getting open. He was one of my favorite recruits of the last couple of years, and I always thought he would be in that, that slot position. But now I don't know because for two reasons. They need someone to replace McCoy's spot, at least for now. Taj Washington, the Memphis transfer, is a guy that they like on the outside because they have so many other slot guys. They have they brought Katie Nixon in from Colorado in the spring. They brought Jake Smith from Texas in this summer. You know, Kyle Ford is kind of the forgotten name, and he is not a prototypical speedy slot. He's a big guy, was almost built like a tight end, but they like him inside. And, and he's told me that he really got comfortable playing inside in practice before his last injury. So he's an option there in that A receiver slot position. 
Um, John Jackson III is still around. Michael Jackson III can play inside or outside. They have so many options in that slot area and less so on the outside. And Gary Bryant worked on the outside all spring. I mean, they were so thin in the spring that anyone who was healthy worked outside and they ran two tight ends otherwise. But uh, we'll find out as camp goes along. But I think maybe he's he and Taj Washington are in some kind of a timeshare and Drake London is, is the guy on the other side for the most part. My thoughts. Yeah, I agree. And because of all those names that you listed, obviously it's a big loss to lose Brew McCoy. But I think there's a world in, in, in two months where just because there's so many bodies that you, in a weird way, as bad as this is to say, you forget about Brew McCoy, um, as harsh as it is to say, just because there are so many guys there and guys that have, even if they're transfers, have at least some run to them, have some street career that they're walking in uh, into the park with. And I think, and I'm fascinated this year. We mentioned this last time we had a podcast. In the past, it was very slotted with how Graham Harrell was going to use the guys, at least in my opinion. You knew you had your top three or top four receivers. They were all going to be on the field in some capacity. There wasn't as much rotation there versus this year. You can get real creative if you're Graham Harrell in terms of how you're going to use the different guys and. I'm guilty of this. I did this last time we did. We were on the podcast. I always think of Gary Bryan as like a small slot receiver. I always forget he's six one. He's got yeah. a little bit of length to him. So, you, you, if he becomes a main stage at the receiver position, then sure, he's, I, I could totally see him move outside. Especially when you have a KD Nixon who's more of if and I, I know KD played outside, but even if he's more of a, a slot body type, um, and I'm excited to see some of these young guys. You talk about. Uh, a Michael Treg or a, even an Epps, another Texas transfer coming that way. There's just so many guys. I don't think USC is going to have an issue at the receiver position. But at the at the same time, Brew McCoy was that dude. If you were on the ten yard line and needed a fade route to score the have a game winning touchdown, well, you still have Drake London. Don't get me wrong, but man, it'd be nice to have a, a true red zone weapon in Brew McCoy. That obviously isn't going to be there this year. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see. We'll get a final word. I just don't want True. to assume anything about his status, but but you have to you have to move forward, planning to be without him. I mean, that's all, that's all you can do right now. And uh, you know, obviously, Clay Helton will get asked about it Friday. He won't say anything, so it, it'll just kind of be out there until he has his court date in November, which is when it's scheduled for right now. It could get moved up. Uh, who knows? Okay, defensive player that you think is most likely to take the biggest leap this season. Maybe we're on the same page again. Maybe we're not. What do you got? Some might push back on me and say this leap happened last year, but I'm going to argue that the leap can happen even more so this year, and it's uh, the new school, Tui Pelotu. Uh, Tuli, I'm excited to see what he does. I think it's kind of by default. Uh, similar to what I said about Gary Bryant in terms of he's going to make the leap, not only because of his skill, but I think he's going to have to make the leap, and he's in that position to make a leap. Well, defensive tackle this year for USC is going to be crucial in terms of how do they address the guys that left, how do they address transfers and injuries that happened, and then in terms of depth over the course of the season, that's why I'm excited to see Tui Pelotu. I think he's going to make an even bigger jump knowing how when you get to that year two, year three of your body as a defensive lineman, that's where you really become a grown man. And I think they're going to need him to be uh, I don't want to say elite, but they're going to need him to be very good for SC to get to where they want to be. So I like Thule up there in the middle. I promise we did not compare notes, but th- this is kind of an obvious one. And, and yeah, he definitely broke out last year. He got better with each game. His role grew with each game. And by the spring, I mean, if you listen to the coaches or his teammates talk about him in the spring, you would have thought they were talking about like a – like a redshirt junior or you know a fourth year veteran, when they were talking about his, his presence, he's a leader. He's he's this that. He's a foundation piece. Those can all be true, even though he's just now in his second season. But I, I do think that his role is much bigger this year. It's much more important, and he is different this year in that since the spring. Now this is just based on the roster. I had not seen him really in person yet, but based on the roster since the spring. To the new roster, he has apparently gained 25 pounds and grown an inch. Hey, now. That's a, that's that's a, lot, a lot of, of weight. In a few months. Yeah, and it's not the kind of weight that uh, a lot of us grew over the pandemic. This is, this is <laughs> good, good muscle and natural growth. He's, he's 6'4", 290 now. 
I talked to Clay Helton about him at Media Day, kind of off to the side, and he said, you know, it gives, gives us a lot of options. He's still athletic enough to be a defensive end, but he's now big enough to be a you know, true defensive tackle. And when you have a Corey Foreman and you have a Nick Figueroa back at that strong side DM position, and obviously on the other side you have the the outside linebacker, B-backers, you know, Drake Jackson, I think it makes sense to get Thule at one of those uh, other inside positions. You know, he doesn't solve the nose tackle need, and we'll get to that later, I guess. But I think he could be an important cog next to that strong side DN inside there. Okay, we're two for two on the same page, but I know, I know you do not have this answer for the next one. I just for know. what most intriguing transfer? I'll let uh, you. I'll, I'll let you. Is that where you're going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, most intriguing summer transfer. Because most you know, intriguing summer transfer. All right. I mean, we, we talked about Keontae Ingram a lot in the spring, and um, we talked about Xavier Alford and and those guys. But they kept adding a- after after the spring. They, got, they brought in Malcolm Epps to tight end. They brought in Chris Thompson Jr. another safety. Jake Smith the receiver, and the guy that I'm picking, Darwin Barlow, running back. Hey now, now, now maybe you're thinking I'm just trying to replace the marquee step void in my heart. But we I all think, know that's the case. We all know that's exactly <laughs> why you're doing it. You're looking for that next big bruiser. <laughs> I think it's more than that. So here's why I'm so intrigued by Dar- Darwin Barlow. We came out of spring. So all we heard all, all spring, before spring, is that we are getting away from the committee. We're going to have a 1A and a 1B back. And they're going to get all the touches. And that's just the way it's going to be. So we come out of spring, and we're pretty sure we know who those guys are. We're pretty sure that one is... Vi Malapai, who's been a coach's favorite for as long as this staff's been together and has led the team in rushing the last two years. And Keontae Ingram, the Texas transfer, who was the most impressive of any running back in the spring and just seems to be able to do it all. And it just seemed like, okay, those are the two guys. You know, Stephen Carr sees the ready on the wall or, or had a conversation with the staff. He transfers to Indiana. And so we think we know this is the running back picture. And then they bring in Darwin Barlow from TCU. Darwin Barlow is a guy out of Texas. I mean, of course he's out of Texas. They have the the roster now. But uh, he's a guy they wanted out of high school and took an official visit out here. They really wanted him in that 2019 class and didn't get him. And he entered the transfer portal after this last season. He played a lot for TCU. He rushed for like 490 yards. He was the leading rusher among running backs. Their quarterback also ran a lot. Uh, essentially, he told me that he just it was kind of felt the offense wasn't going to maximize what he could do best. He wanted to to move on. He takes another visit to USC, commits to USC, and now he's in the mix. And he has four years of eligibility left, so he could be the running back of the future. But he also told me when I visited him in June, uh, I was out in Fort Worth when this happened, so I got to spend time with him right before he he moved out of TCU and left. And I, I asked him what his expectations were. He said, you know. I know I got to come in and compete with some guys, and uh, but I'm hoping I'm hoping to get some opportunities and play a major role, and then be the guy next year. So you have a guy who was a one of the primary backs at TCU as a redshirt freshman, transfers is expecting to come in here and play and be a factor, and yet we thought we knew what the running back backfield was going to be with Bavai and Keontae Ingram. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that? Maybe there's room for a third running back, and we're going to get pushed back into this rotation thing that just didn't seem to work at all in the last couple of years. Or is there a really hard decision to make? And I can't see any way that Vi and Ingram don't have major roles. So to me, it's either Barlow wows him this month and forces his way into it, or he has to buy this time until next year. But for those reasons, he's the most intriguing summer transfer newcomer to me. The most intriguing thing I, to me, I, I want to see what Mike Jenks is saying. I, I want to be a fly on the wall because yeah. the, the 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 running back room for USC has been so intriguing the, these past few years because on paper we run an air raid offense, yet all these guys are coming in here to uh, tote the rock, and there's been so many talented guys. SC just lost like Stephen Carr, Marquis Step. Those guys are going to be like big time backs for their respective schools. Yeah, USC's not going to blink an eye, so that's a subject for a different time. But I just, I'm just – if the topics, if the word's intriguing or what, what, what intrigues you, the, the whole room is fascinating with uh, 
because there, there's so much pushback with the running back position, I feel like, amongst fans and how it's handled, yet these elite players keep coming in, and um, it's a good problem to have your USC. So I cheated a little bit. My impact transfer is not a summer guy, uh, and I'm, I'm just fascinated to see how uh, Ishmael Sopsire turns out, uh, defensive tackle. And I know his health is in question. When you talk about defensive tackle, you talk about Alabama transfer, you talk about coming all the way out to the West Coast, I mean, I've I've done the transfer route. I mean, if you're transfer, you're transferring for a reason. You're having you want to do an you want to make an impact. You want to play, especially when you're that big of a recruit. If he can have any sort of role this year, um, in terms of depth and production, that's huge for this USC team. Because Ryan, when me and you talk in two months, and we are two and a half months, and that we're on the the back end of the season, like D line depth is going to be crucial, especially. USC can go 10-4 in their sleep, in my opinion, if they if they do what they need to do. It's can they get over the hump. And to do that, I think you have to be good to very good at the front seven position. You need a guy like Shopsire to uh, to step up. So that's my most intriguing transfer. We Like you said, we talked a bunch about uh, Keontae Ingram. It's intriguing to me just because I think there's a little bit of a domino effect with him in that if he becomes main stage – to my point earlier about um, Gary Bryant, the trickle-down effect for all those skill players, if Keontae Ingram ends up getting 20 carries a game, well, like who, who, who's he taking touches away from? Is it a third receiver? Is it a first tight end? Is it another running back? Are we gonna be talking in two months about Keenan Christian and is he gonna transfer or what's going on there? All those types of things, and I hate to go down that path, but we've seen it firsthand over the past few years. That's the reality when you have these loaded position groups in terms of talent and there's only one ball to go around so in terms of intrigue i'll still uh, uh not forget about ingram as well i think the sopster pick is is right on the money i mean he, yeah he arrives in the winter but he hasn't done, done anything yet so he might as well be a summer uh enrollee so i, I asked clay help in the media day about that obviously uh, for those who don't know uh, ishmael sopster big nose tackle um, a guy that many thought could be a real immediate stopgap and solution at that spot. He has surgery on his leg for compartment syndrome, which is, you know, you're hearing more and more about it these days. I didn't, I'd never heard about it until last year when Michael Pittman had it uh, in his NFL rookie season. He missed like, like four weeks and was back. But, you know, there's obviously varying degrees of it. It can be very serious. It can cause a lot of ramifications. I won't try and be WebMD here and, and give you the full breakdown. You can look it up if you want. But he had surgery before the spring and is still out. And Clay Helton said, uh, as of last week, you know, we're not sure if he's going to be ready to go for camp. I asked him, is there any optimism that he could be involved in some facet during camp? And he goes, there, there's optimism that he could be involved. So it's really up in the air. Apparently he's he's done some jogging, he's moving around a little bit, but he's not done any strenuous football activities. I've been out at the player run practices. We, we see him walk out there and walk back. He's not going through the full workout with the rest of the guys. So it's an indefinite timeline, and you, you're totally right, though. He's a guy that they really could use. Let's just break this down. Here's who they've lost at nose tackle in the last – since the end of last season. So obviously Marlon Tupelotsu goes to the NFL. He was your stalwart there for a couple years. Okay, well, you think you have an obvious replacement with Brandon Peely, redshirt senior, has had a lot of playing time, fits the mold of a nose tackle, just, you know, real big imposing guy, takes up a lot of space, uh, obvious plug-and-play guy. He tears his Achilles in spring practice. Okay, so then you reset again, and you get this guy Jay Toya, this freshman, who, again, just built like a nose tackle, just a, a massive guy as a freshman, and he's really impressive. I mean, he's one of those guys who's catching our eye in practice every day. He's got a strong bull rush. He's got, you know, he's still raw, but he's, he's got a lot to him. And you come out and you say, well, you know what? They'll be okay. They got Jay Toya and some other guys behind them. And then Jay Toya stuns everyone and transfers to UCLA after the spring. So you've now lost those guys. Then you talk about a Sopshire, who even when he was missing the spring, we just assumed would be back for fall camp. Well, he's not back now. So you've essentially taken what could have been the three deep at nose tackle in Peely, Toya, Sopshire, in some order, 
and taking them all off the table, except for Sopcher if he happens to return at some point. And so you are, you're replacing your starter for the last couple of years, and now you've lost the three most likely guys to replace him. And that's where they're at at nose tackle. So, yes, he, he is very important if he can come back. I'll add, I'll add uh, one one real life example. True yeah. USC fans will remember this. Throw it back to 2016. That was my last year at USC. The, obviously, the Rose Bowl winning team. We had depth issues at nose tackle. It was a big concern, and we went out in the transfer portal. I guess it wasn't considered transfer portal, and we got Stevie Tui Tui Tui. Koldovatu, excuse me, it's a tough one, from Utah, and that changed our defense. Big Stevie T was all Pac-12 player. He locked down the center of our defense, and it, it literally went from an area of concern to an area of strength and really led that defense. So it, I'm having deja vu in terms of a defense that really could use Stevie was a fifth-year grad transfer, so that's why I went to the, the Sobshire. I know he's not a, a, a grad transfer per se, but so, if someone can step up in the middle, or, and we'll get into this probably later in the show, if Todd Orlando has to get creative of how he's you know, utilizing linebackers, defensive ends, defensive tackles, but something's got to happen in the inside for that, that USC defense for, like, like we said, for them to get to the, uh, the, the step that we all know they should and could get to. Well, you know, I mean, we're here. Let's just finish the conversation on it, and we don't have to come back to it later. So, you know, even Sopcher, who just seems like an obvious fit there, he played uh, part of one game over two years at Alabama. So he still has plenty to prove, even when he's healthy. But the rest of the guys combined for 68 snaps last year, combined. That's three guys. That's Jamar Sakona, redshirt freshman. That's Kobe Pepe, redshirt freshman. And Stanley Taufu, uh, redshirt sophomore. And Clay Helton uh, rattled those names off to me and said, we're probably going to go with a rotation there with, with, those, with those guys. And Jamar Sakona got a lot of run in spring. It was after Peely went down, it was really Sakona and Toya who were splitting the reps at nose tackle. He played a lot. He was kind of viewed as the most improved guy on defense through winter conditioning, through spring practice. So there, there, there's things to like there. But he's not quite the same, you know, space filler that a Peely would have been, or or a Toya would have been, or a Sopcher. And he played two snaps last year. So if he's your your best option, you're really starting from scratch there. Uh, Kobe Pepe came in a little out of shape last year and and just never really got his footing and didn't have much of a role. He he, he played some, but we haven't really seen a lot of him. Uh, Stanley. Uh, T came in as a linebacker and has been moved down to a, I think he was moved to a defensive end first and a defensive tackle, and he's not really had much of a role yet. And, and those are the guys they're looking at. So Max, my question to you, and, and this is just something that you know I, I don't, I don't think that I know defensive football coaching enough to know. Is there anything creative they can do there that where you're not relying on on those three guys? Is there anything outside the box? Um, that they could possibly consider there. 100%. And that's going to lead me into the, the response for one of our next questions in terms of underrated storylines. And the note I have down is just Todd Orlando. I think you go and you get another Texas guy in Todd Orlando. Like this, that is, this is where you make your money if you're Todd Orlando. You have depth concerns into your defense line. All right, so what do you do? And luckily... Yes, nose tackle, you would like to have a nose tackle. But worst case scenario, there's a world where you can move some of these defensive ends inside. I mean, if we're saying Thule is now 290 pounds, well, there's a world where you can really dig his hand in the dirt and play inside. And I know they want him maybe as more of a, a little bit more on the edge, not a true nose tackle, but Thule you can move inside. We've seen Nick Figueroa in the past move inside if you had to. I'll throw it back to the guy I played with, dang, five years ago. Worst case scenario, put Liam Jimmins as a defensive tackle back in his OG days and then have <laughs> uh, shift the offensive line uh, and have Dedich now be a, a right guard or, or McKenzie, however that is, uh, that, that's going to shake out. So I think there's certainly things you can do. I'll double down even further and say, let's say Drake Jackson. All right, we all know he's great. 
Well, let's say Corey Foreman comes to play. We all, we, everyone agrees that Hunter Eccles is kind of an unsung hero in some respect. So that's three guys that you have at that hybrid linebacker position. Well, if you want them all on the field in more of a capacity, well, that means you have kind of, you, you go two of those guys on the field. And as a result, just sheer numbers, that, that forces a Nick Figueroa to move inside, which then boots out a Jamar Sakota or something else like that. So that could happen just naturally as well if these hybrid backers start coming to play. I think you can also get creative too if, if Drake Jackson, were his true freshman year, he was more of a true defensive end. Well, if, if they ask him to do a lot more of that than more of the linebacker nature he's he's been asked to do last year and he's and you're asking Drake Jackson to be a true run stopper well that gives you a more another d-end-esque body that you can play with so I definitely think there's things Todd Orlando can do um a nose tackle is great to have I think it's something you have to have to win a national championship and I'll go as far as saying um a Pac-12 championship especially with if, if Oregon's the team in the north but I think there's ways that you can beat very good football teams by being creative with the defensive line, assuming those uh, defensive ends that I rattled off stay healthy. Very interesting. Let me build off that in a couple of points. Drake, and I know you haven't seen him this year, but he, he has slimmed down even more. Like He, he is really uh, very, very slim. And I think he's, he's tried to increase his speed and mobility. And uh, with Corey, they, they see him in that strong side defensive end role. So, you know, you'll have the, the B backer on one side, you'll have Corey on the other. My question to you, and uh, is kind of reiterating what you said, to me, their three best defensive linemen, or the best alignment is Corey Foreman, Nick Figueroa, Tuli Tufilotu, and then Drake Jackson as the B backer. Is there a way where you can get by with those four guys, none of whom is really close to what a, a nose tackle is? is there, can that work over long stretches of a game? My initial response is no over the extent of the game, especially your the, the comment that I put over the top. If Drake Jackson got even smaller this offseason, well, that's a conversation for another time. That, that to me, I, hey, I'll trust the strength staff. I don't necessarily like the sound of that, but – if you're having a undersized Drake Jackson, which that's what you can say, if you got even smaller than last year, especially at that, if you're asking him to set an edge and you're asking a true freshman, and I know who Corey Foreman is, but that's tough for a true freshman, especially against elite football teams. I don't think that can be your main stage, um, what you're rolling out every single time. I do think that can be a change of pace. I do think that can be a main stage third down defense. Yeah. But in terms of first and second down against the elite teams, I think you're going to get beat in the uh, in the run game with that look. Okay, so then you know I, I just finished my defensive line preview on Thursday, and my projected depth chart was that I think you were going to see a rotation of Corey Foreman and Nick Figueroa at the strong side defensive end for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, you know, Corey being everything he is, five star talent, uh, top national prospect. He's still a freshman, and I don't think you you throw him in for seventy snaps his first game. So you have him, him and Nick rotating there. You have Thule inside at defensive tackle, and you have that three-man rotation at nose tackle and hope it works out. And you have Drake Jackson and Hunter Eccles as the B-backers. I think that's probably the most likely scenario. So you, you really got to hope that those three nose tackle, uh, like bodies guys, are ready to uh, elevate and play that role. And it just confirms the, the point of, of breakout player that we both had. We all just went down the numbers. We all know Nick Figueroa confirmed himself last year as a main stage defense lineman. Boom, there's one guy. If Thule can be that second guy that you know you're going to have, if he's two and you already have Drake Jackson, that's three front seven players that you know are going to play. That's so big versus if Thule's not there and you're having to piece a, to piece together another defense alignment in some capacity – that's so tough. You have to have, at this stage, Nick Figueroa and I think Tuli Tupelotu to show up and be consistent playmakers, especially nowadays defense line. You're going to rotate guys in some capacity. They they need Tuli big time this year. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned the next category was most 
underrated storyline. Yours is Tyler Orlando. Is there anything more you wanted to add before I, I get my my pick? Only thing I'll add is the secondary component. I mentioned the, the musical chairs, so to speak, with like, like we just went through with the defensive line and the B-backer, as they're calling it. But what I'm also uh, intrigued to see is, all right, Talanohu Funga, he's gone. He's been an SC fan favorite for, for the past few years. So with Talanoa gone, some of the creative defensive schemes they did, how does Todd Orlando adjust? Does, does one guy fill that role? Do multiple guys fill that role? Do they do a more basic secondary scheme as a result of Talanoa not being there, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes clean and simple is the way to go. I'm just, I'm intrigued. Todd Orlando gets a full season. He's now no longer the new guy on the block. I'm just very intrigued to see how he manages all those defensive backs because there are bodies out there. There are guys and players that can get up there and, you know, show out and and, and produce. But how does it all shake out now that you have a main stage guy in in Talanohu Funga now in an NFL jersey? That's uh, fascinating to me. Yeah, no, I'm with you on on – Tyler Orlando being very much in the spotlight, and I, I wrote Thursday about the linebackers. You know, that's he coaches the linebackers himself, and I think you know we have a lot of hope that his track record of developing guys is going to manifest here. I don't know if it, it truly did last year, but there are a lot of you know factors working against the whole process with with the shortened season, the late start. So is he now able to get a more consistent Kanai Malga, a, a, a more consistent? And next level, Raylan Goforth. Um, you know, uh, th- those are questions I have for him. So yeah, th- there's a lot, a lot to evaluate with with To this year, and and we'll see how that goes. But it, it could really shape their season. Um, my pick for most underrated storyline, though, was the wide receiver competition. And I would have said this even before the Brew McCoy news, probably. But it's it's definitely more pronounced now. There's just so many newcomers that we really don't know much about. Uh, and there's so many moving pieces and there's so many versatile pieces that, you know, that was one of the hardest depth charts for me to project. And, and I'm sure that I'm going to be wrong in a few of, of my slots because um, there's just so many ways that you can go. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rope in the, the tight ends, not the traditional tight ends, but the, the Y receivers, the, the Malcolm Epps and Michael Triggs in there. So basically... Because they got Malcolm Epps from Texas, who is this, was he 6'5", 6'6", 245? But Keaton Slovis told me, he goes, I was so surprised by his speed. I, I told him afterward that I didn't expect you to be where you were so quickly. And he goes, well, of course, I'm a 4'5 I'm a guy. He goes, I, I didn't realize that. He goes, he looks like a, you know, a traditional tight end, and then he's just this uh, really sneaky, fast, uh, big-body receiver. So they bring him in, and Michael Trigg was one of their highest-rated recruits, four-star, top 100 national prospect at tight end. Those guys are going to play the wide receiver role, which is where Drake London has been the last two years, because Clay Helton told me they want to move London around. He's going to be the focal point this year, and they don't want him to be the focal point of defenses to the extent that he can be taken out of games with double teams and, and bracket coverage. So... I think they want to have him on the outside a bunch, because and especially now they probably need him out there a bunch. But they don't want to just leave him out there. They want to be creative, keep defenses guessing, move him back to his Y spot at times. But the reason why they're able to even do that is because they have Epps and Trigg, and I, I guess it depends on how well those guys look in, in in camp and if they prove that yeah that they can be that guy. Because think how many times the last two years that that position where London was was the go-to route in you know, pivotal third downs or game-winning touchdowns. Um, I think maybe he probably still rotates in for some of those plays just because of the chemistry and, and timing that he and Keaton Slovis have. So maybe you still see Drake working the seam on a big fourth and six or, or a, a, you know, a final red zone play, but they're going to move him around. I already mentioned... Uh, Gary Bryant and Taj Washington, I think they're going to be the other outside receivers, I think. We'll see. Taj Washington was not here in the spring, so we haven't seen him. Gary Bryant was slowed last year by an ankle injury and this camp by a hamstring injury, so we've never really seen peak Gary Bryant, I I don't think. So those are evaluations that have to happen. Uh, And then I I mentioned all the the slot guys. Jake Smith we haven't seen at all from Texas, the speedster slot guy. Uh, We saw Kitty Nixon in the spring. 
Uh, someone told me that he wasn't fully healthy, so maybe we didn't see the best version of him. We didn't see Kyle Ford in the spring. Uh, so we really haven't seen this receiver picture all together, and th- I'm so intrigued by it because I could make four different depth charts, two deeps, that make sense to me. And I don't know which one it's going to be. I, I, you know, I have my favorite that I think it's going to be, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's not. And then just a couple more names while we're on it. You know, uh, Michael Jackson III was one of the stars of spring, the, the freshman receiver. Drake London told me, he goes, every practice that guy shines and proves he belongs here. He could, he could be a, a plug-and-play guy as a number two outside receiver. He could be a, one of the slot guys. You can do a lot with him. And then Joseph Manjack, the most underrated guy in the whole class, three-star from Texas. He was a two-star when USC started recruiting him from Houston. Ended up a three-star. He has wowed everybody this summer. He's Keaton Slovis told me he's built like like Drake London. He's just, just this tall, long guy. He has great hands. He's fast. He's still, you know, he's not Drake London yet. He's still raw, but uh, he might be a guy who rises up a lot quicker than people expect. So there's a lot of possibilities there. The fact that you were able to just rattle off all, all those names, then out of the rabbit out of the hat, Joseph Manjack, and we're still going on names, is the yeah. reason that I'm not concerned about losing Brew McCoy, which might be a hot take, and obviously there's there's more to that, and we'll see how things shake out. And obviously it's a sad deal. Don't get me wrong. Um, obviously not good for anyone involved. But there's just so many names there and so much excitement. I've seen receiver rooms and coaches talk about, like, man, we don't have any playmakers out there. Like, we might be in trouble. We, have to, we might have to get creative. Yeah, Graham's going to have to get creative this year, but not creative to the extent of, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to help guys get open. I think USC is gonna be just fine at the receiver position. I think it's gonna look different. I think there's probably gonna be more rotation than we're used to, and more unique per- personnel groups and formations than we're used to. But very little concern in terms of the 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 group as a whole on my end. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, our last category, and we probably covered this to some degree, is, is biggest question on both sides of the ball. Uh, Max, offense. What's your biggest question? I'll go back. So I had an underrated storyline on offense, and I'll just I'll wrap it into a question. And I'll say, will Keaton Slovis make a jump? And I, maybe that's not the biggest question, but I think that's one thing that's not getting enough light. I feel like Keaton's being portrayed in the light that Matt Barkley was going into his final year and Sam Darnold was going into his final year in terms of, hey, they're a main stage quarterback, USC. I still think Keaton has a ton to prove. I, th- I and, and, and if we fast forward five months, there's a world where he's a first round NFL quarterback, a top end, like that, that, that world exists. That route is not crazy talk. Yet, I still think he has a big gap to get there. I think he's got to improve. And as a, as a third-year non-redshirt guy, like this is where quarterbacks make the jump. I say that uh, uh, all the time. The third year, whether you're a redshirt sophomore or a true junior, that's when quarterbacks, they're comfortable. They're no, it's their team finally. I'm expecting big things from Keaton. And I think at times in the past, the the scheme and the offense that he's been in has he's it's it's allowed him to uh, have uh, comfortable times at times. He's a hell of a player. Don't get me wrong, but I want to see him take that jump this year. I don't see anyone else talking about it. When you kind of look at the quarterbacks across the conference, you he he's put there at the top, rightfully so. He's that talented, but I still think there's a big step that he can take. Uh, on top of what he's already done, and that's probably the quarterback in me. But for SC, once again, to take that next step, Keaton can't have the off games and the off series and the off quarters that we've seen in the past. Sure, he's going to make mistakes, but it's the I want to see him make mistakes by, um, you know, experience mistakes, not ones that are like, man, you're scratching your head. Why, why, like, why the heck did, did that happen? Uh, I think that the veteran Keaton Slovis, no, younger, the, no longer the youngster, is something that I have my eye on this year that. Uh, I don't see a lot of people talking about. Yeah, I do think a lot of fans feel the same way you do and feel like he has a ton to prove still. And, and maybe there's a lot of doubt out there uh, off of last season, some of the struggles he had, uh, even though the overall numbers were still pretty good and he still came through in the clutch in almost every game except for the Oregon game. Uh, I, I'm a little more bullish. I, I, I won't get into it because I've, I've stated it so many times for readers and listeners. I just I kind of buy, I buy into the reasons why last season wasn't peak Slovis. I buy into the reasons that he's explained of why this season is different. 
and I just think it's gonna it's gonna work out. But we'll see. Definitely a fair answer to that question. My biggest question for the offense is at right tackle, will the coaching staff have a true competition and truly allow redshirt freshman Jonah Monheim to challenge Jalen McKenzie for that job? And we saw it at the end of spring practice. The last so the first three weeks they went with the exact same first team line the whole camp. And it was the all the returning starters plus Cortland Ford left tackle. The last two weeks of spring, they mixed things up. And one of the, the constants was that Jonah Monheim was getting a lot, a lot, a lot of the first team reps. And he looked good. He's he's physically impressive. Um, that's obviously been a spot that's underperformed. Many people, including myself, feel that McKenzie is probably better utilized inside as a guard where he played in 2019. Uh, he definitely struggled out there last year. He gave up the most pressures, the most sacks on the team, had the most penalties among all the linemen. But are they going to tell a redshirt senior either you're, you're, you lost your job or we're moving you inside, and then you got to tell Liam Jimmins you've lost your job. Or that, move him to defensive tackle, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when, when you mentioned that earlier, that was my thought. I'm like, oh, now it makes sense. I could see it happening. But I, I just don't know if – I just don't know if, if, if a Clay Helton team is going to do that to a, 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 a two-year starter in his last year, even if Jonah Monheim might be a spark and an upgrade – or maybe he's not. I mean, he has to prove that still this camp. I, I think this momentum is taking place uh, behind him for his potential, but he still has to prove it. So let's not assume that he's the best option. But if he is, will they start him there? That's my biggest question. I have three offensive linemen highlighted. Jonah Monheim, Cortland Ford, and Casey Collier. For a good year, 18 months, that class or the, the, that kind of next the 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 reinforcement so to speak if if one of those guys can become a dude that helps this team so much and everyone's saying Cortland Ford I got it but if one of those guys can really take a next step that helps this offense line so much especially and you hate to say it but if injuries do rear their ugly head and you need help at the tackle position uh, I love that call. If, if Jonah Monheim, even if he doesn't play, even if he doesn't start, if he pushes Jalen McKenzie to then say, "Oh crap, I need to, I need to show up. I need to make sure I'm locked in," that helps the entire unit. And depth of the offensive line position is uh, is clutch as well. The only last little point I'll say too that I didn't touch on before is I'm fascinated to see Mike Jenks' running back game plan. Before <laughs> it was running back by committee. He's, he's gone on record saying, now nah, we're going to stick with more uh, true tiered system. But that's easier said than done when you have the backfield that you have. There's just so many names. I mean, all the names in the receiver front that you mentioned, there's a lot of names in the running back front as well. Excited to see how that uh, plays out because I think there's going to be uh, a, certainly a ripple effect. That, there's just – look at my notes right now. There's so many skilled players that legitimately go so home. And, and when they call their parents at night, they're like, all right. I'm gearing up for uh, a, a big role this year. There are yep. so many guys, and so you're going to have people disappointed. There's, there's only one ball, football to go around. How does that shake out this year? Fascinating to follow. I, I'm right there with you on Jinx. I mean, I, I went into the spring uh, thinking, you know, this 1A, 1B thing sounds good. I don't see it happening because it requires some really hard decisions. I came out of the spring thinking, okay, I, I think maybe they're going to do it. Maybe it's going to be Vian Ingram. And then you add in Barlow uh, are you really are you really gonna just leave Keenan Christian on the bench again? I mean, he barely played last year, after being such a spark as a freshman. Uh, it's gonna be a tough call. So yeah, I I do still have my doubts whether we will have a non-committee at running back. Okay, on defensive side, biggest question, Max. Biggest question, defensive line. I'm gonna go back to. The D-line depth, I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel. That, to me, by far and away is the biggest question. You can maybe say linebacker and how that shakes out, but that's less of a question for me. In terms of interior D-line depth, where does USC go? And even if you can you can piece it together and, and put some names there, when you start playing the teams that have a great running attack and you start getting into the second half and guys start getting tired and, and USC starts getting nicked up, where do they go? It feels like last year... 
Uh, a lot of our podcasts, Ryan, we, we kind of we, we we knew the faces that were playing. It was less. Yes, Nick Figueroa was a question and a surprise and an intriguing storyline, but we knew most of the faces. It's not going to be the the case as much this year. I, I think on a on an interior D line uh, point of view. So that to me is is. I'll say by far and away the biggest question on defense. Yeah, I'm right with you. I won't belabor the point. Uh, to me, I'm, it's just that nose tackle spot specifically, and uh, that'll be a storyline all camp. Max, is there anything we didn't get to? I, I know one position we didn't talk about real quick was the cornerbacks. Um, you know, obviously Chris Steele's back. He's the first team you know, preseason all Pac-12 guy. But is Isaac Taylor Stewart going to have that breakout year? Is he going to lock down that field corner spot? That's a question for me. I think I would not I would not look past freshman Sierra Wright. Uh, he's going to get yep. a chance at that spot. He's known Dante Williams for a long time. Dante is super high on him. I wouldn't be surprised if we have some rotation at that field corner spot and they give Isaac every chance to be the guy. And maybe maybe he totally is and he locks it down and he cleans up some of the inconsistencies in his game and his athleticism shines, and he is that guy. That could happen. Or there could be a, a rotation there, and maybe a Sierra Wright or someone else, a Dorian Hewitt, gives a chance. That's about the only thing that I think we didn't cover. Just looking the the only other thing we didn't cover and the news came out today was Coliseum now doing uh, alcohol <laughs> yes. sales, which I'm sure there's a lot of listeners right now saying – I might uh, think about heading back to the old uh, Coliseum now. Been on what? Uh, been been denied for 17 years now. Mike Bowen trying to spark up the fan base again. I'll be uh, I'll be an optimism. I think it's uh, it's a good thing. I think it gets people in there. Just hey, make sure we're make sure we're keeping it appropriate, folks. A very important point. I'm glad you uh, picked up the slack. There <laughs> Improve that. that game day experience, baby. I, I knew for a while that they were working on that. I didn't know if it was going to come to fruition. So. Yep, that was the big news on Thursday. All right, Max, we did it. There we go. And next time we uh, link up, I don't know if questions will be answered, but we'll certainly have a lot more data points to discuss. So looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, might let a few weeks go, and so we have some fresh stuff to talk about. But really appreciate your insight, as always. I know our listeners do, and you'll be hearing from Max all season on TrojanSports.com. Good stuff. Thanks, guys.